Hello, Sobertown listeners. My name is Michael, MMC13 on the I Am Sober app, and it's my pleasure to be coming to you today on behalf of Sobertown and SobertownPodcast.com, your one-stop shop for sobriety. It is so much more than podcasts. I encourage you to explore the website and some of the amazing resources available there. Learn about who we are, what we do, and gain access to sober communities, education, and all the tools you need to fill your sober toolbox. We have a Sober Town Podcast Facebook group to connect with members of our community more easily. Most Sober Town members are also part of a community called I Am Sober, which we fondly call IAS. Download the app in your app store and discover a worldwide sober tribe. Volunteers across the community provide daily online recovery meetings. The schedule for those can be located on SobertownPodcast.com. This is my sober solution, and I hope it may become part of yours. I'm so happy you found us. I am honored to have our guest with us today. She is a shining example of a survivor, a warrior who addiction tried to steal everything from, and she never gave up. Her name is Allison. She goes by Allie, and she's agreed to share her story with us today. I can't wait to hear it. So excited. Yes. I'm so happy you're here. So, Allie, I'm going to just kind of have you start for a little bit of early life for us. What was growing up like, Bling's family, things of that nature. Okay. I'm 33 years old now. Growing up, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. And my mother and my, he's my stepfather, but he's been my stepfather since I was, before I was three. So he's my father in my eyes. I have no contact with my biological father at all. Haven't since I was 12. But I was raised in a very loving home with my mom and dad. And we always had animals and there was always laughter and good times. And my parents are truly shining examples of what parents should be. But... That just goes to show you that addiction does not just prey on the weak. It, it can prey on anyone and everyone. And no one is, is free, or you just free to go about and frolic about. Everyone has to live by constraint. But am I like I played softball growing up? I mean, it's a great normal childhood. Great. That's similar to my story. I I also had a a very loving, supportive home. So you're right. Addiction definitely does not discriminate. No. So tell us a little bit about when addiction did start to show up in your life. Gosh, I'd say probably when I was about 20 years old. It's when I joined the Navy. I was in the Navy for five years. I was an intelligence specialist stationed in Japan and then Hawaii and I got to Colorado. Very blessed and fortunate was where I've been. But unfortunately, my parents never allowed drinking growing up. So when I was exposed to it without any rules or boundaries because I didn't set them for myself, I, I just went wild and never realized the error in my ways. I don't think Anyone in the world starts drinking alcohol or drugs because they're like, yeah, I want to ruin my life. I just don't think that's how it goes. It it just kind of slowly creeps in. There's science and, you know, so much research about this. 
that that's how alcohol and drugs work. Alcohol is a drug. It, it took over by the time I was about twenty six, I'd say, is when I think that was a turning point in my alcoholism. And what sort of things happened? What, what was the experience like for you? Was it enjoyable, at least initially? And did it kind of fall apart? Oh, gosh, yes. It was very enjoyable. That is the common misconception that alcohol gives us. That is giving us this courage, this liquid courage that I used to say all the time. And we have this false narrative that we've been taught through advertising and marketing our entire lives, really, where, where alcohol just plants low seeds and we see it as fun until it's not. Because I, I drank and would get blackout drunk. My mom and dad would be ashamed if they knew some of the things that I've done. But I'm okay with sharing that with you all. I'm okay with them knowing because that's not who I am anymore. And I want that to be the message that reaches everyone through this podcast, is that it's never, ever too late to change your life. I don't care if you're 95. It's never too late. Definitely. There's, there's got to be a point in your story where you were feeling pretty helpless. And talk to us a little bit about that, if you would, and kind of what, what happened on that journey. Okay, so that turning point that I mentioned earlier when I was about 26, I got married for the first time to my first husband when I was 24. And I got married for the idea that I'm 24, it seems about time. It wasn't for the right reasons. And it was an awful marriage, an absolutely awful marriage. I won't go into detail unless you wish me to, but it was awful. It was very emotionally traumatizing, and then it started to become physical, and that's when I drew the line. We have to draw the line. But that still didn't stop me because it still scarred me emotionally, and then I drank. I started doing this thing where I started drinking to forget, and that's that's when it crossed that threshold of where I could no longer control it. I, I lived in Colorado at the time. We had blizzards. I would walk. I didn't have a car because my license was suspended from a DUI I received in December of 2014. I wrecked my car into a concrete wall and walked away from that was at a scratch somehow. And the other driver flipped his car. And I got out, ran, made sure it was okay. And I was laughing about it. I I did not. I was laughing in the police car. I did not care. I I just did not care about the, about my actions and the magnitude that just simple everyday choices can have. And so... As I said, I, I know I ran. Why do you apologize? But oh, no, you're great. Um, it, like I said, when I, when I started drinking to forget the emotional trauma, and I now realize as I'm older that I've got a lot of emotional trauma from my relationship with my biological father and my stepmother and things that 
I don't, I don't want to paint this one in bad lights, and that's why I don't want to go too deeply into it. But it did leave me emotionally damaged, and I still am. But right now, I'm, what sobriety has taught me is that you don't need alcohol, drugs, anything to get through it. All you need is yourself and your own willpower. Absolutely. And so many of us share a common thread in our stories, which is alcohol tends to be the symptom, not the disease, right? Not the problem. We're, we're, a lot of us are coping with emotional issues or mental health issues. And we, we get into a habit of self-medicating to try to numb those things out or pretend that we're okay. And it's, it's very much a vicious cycle that can oh, see yeah incredibly hopeless when you're trapped in it. You can't necessarily see a way out, see a light at the other end. So it can be incredibly hopeless. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about where that took you? Oh, it took me down a dark, dark path. So being in the military is not something, it's okay. To the person who has never been in the military, you look at it, from an outside perspective, and you can never truly understand until you've been in the military. There's a lot of darkness in the military. There's a lot. That's where that dark humor comes from. Because just like police work, I worked as a 911 dispatcher where I met my current husband. I worked as a 911 dispatcher for four years, and my my stepdad, who was my dad. He was a cop for 30 years, so I grew up around police work, and I, I grew up around the dark humor. It doesn't faze me. I'm not easily offended, or like, well, you know, not just not an easily offendable person, I guess. But I'm glad that I, my parents raised me with thick skin, because it just, I, I don't know, I don't really care what people say too much. I was telling my husband this last night. Everyone seeks validation from others. Everyone does it. There's nothing wrong with it. Back to the struggle, though. When I did become a 911 dispatcher, I bought my own house, lived alone with my animals, never really talked to anyone, and began to isolate myself from even my parents. I would go to work, come home, drink, sleep, repeat. Over and over. I did it for probably two years straight where I hadn't gone 24 months without taking a drink. I've been to the darkest pits of the earth. So I want people to understand that your pain, although I don't understand your pain, there are people who understand what pain is and feels like. And that's why it's easier for to fall into the grass of alcohol or drugs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this addiction and this depression, this dark place you were in, it ultimately led you to actually attempt to take your own life. I did. And I would like you to tell us a bit about that experience, if that's okay. Oh, of course. Any person I can save, that is my objective. I want to leave a positive impact on people's lives. And by doing that, being transparent is a way to do that. Yeah. 
So on December 14th, so 2021, it was 10.30 p.m. I was, am I allowed to curse on this? Please do. Okay. Because I was shit-faced drunk. Could, probably couldn't even walk up my stairs, which was a common occurrence for me. So I often slept on the couch. I was listening to really angry music because I was very angry with myself. Because I may start crying. I'm sorry if I do. I'm trying to control it. Okay. Take your time. I was really angry with myself. Because I felt like a failure. And my parents have been so supportive my entire 33 and a half years of life. And I felt like I had done nothing but let them down. And I know that's not true now, but at the time when I was drinking and in my head and all I could think of, I'm a type of person where if I'm upset about something, that's all I can think about. It's all my brain can focus on. And so I was just harping on it, harping on it and harping on it. And I had finally just come to the end of my room. And I, no one, the thing that changed my life forever is one, God, but two, the fact that once I lived, Once I lived, I saw how important my existence was. And I'm sorry. I was able to see that. And it's a gift from God that I was able to see that because. I know people, I know dozens and dozens of people who have taken their own life and then so wish I could have just held their hands in that moment. I I'm so sorry. Don't be sorry. This is, this is authentic and this is real and this is the kind of thing that I think people who are struggling need to hear. And this is your opportunity to hold the hands of those who are still with us, who may be feeling hopeless, who may be feeling like there's not a way through this, to, to reach out and to try to connect with those people because addiction can take us to some of the darkest places in all of our souls. And it can yes. feel like there is no escaping that. Mm -hmm. I, oh, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. I just, I just want to hold their hand and tell them that this isn't the end for you. 
it gets better. I'm living proof of it. I'm not saying I'm any miraculous, like God chose me. No, I don't think that. I'm not special. I'm just, God saves me for a reason and I'm going to use my existence. I'm never going to forget that this is a second chance. A lot of people approach me and they're like, oh, you're so happy. And you're so happy all the time. How are you sad? And I'm like, I'm not happy all the time, you know. This is, I put on my brave face for others. I, I hide, I'm never smiling most because I don't want to put the burden onto you. Like, if, if, Common courtesy is something that is very lost in our society. I mean, I just, I pray every day that it returns. Yeah, I agree. Mutual respect and caring, regardless of different beliefs, regardless of all the things that drive division at this point. It's, it's hard. It gets heavy. Very if you can tell us about the actual night that you you attempted your life and then... oh yes, I'm so sorry, I kind of spilled God. But yes, so 10:30 p.m. had rolled around, and I was like a bottle deep into of fireball and a 15 rack deep into Miller White, and that not that big, so that was a lot. I, it'll. I had, I've shotguns my whole life, like that's top, as I said, so I'm, I'm still not, well, I'm kind of afraid of guns, but I've never, I've always looked familiar. So I took my nine millimeter out from behind my bed. I took it there. It still has a holster that my granddaddy built in my bed. God was in there. I got it. I went downstairs. I sat back down. I actually don't remember how I made it up the stairs, but I did. And I was sitting on the couch, so my cat was staring at me, my cat Boost was staring at me. I could tell he knew something was wrong. And I finally just made him go away. And I texted my dad, and I'm so, so glad I did. I'm so glad. Now I texted him and I said, I need help. And then I saw myself in it. And then I remember very vividly afterwards. So the bullet did not hit my brain. I was, I have no words for it. I don't know how that happened. It came out where, where it went, right here? Yeah. And I still have scars all over. I'm proud of them. I wear them proudly. Because they're a reminder of my of I survived this. Yeah. And I remember the ambulance ride. I remember my parents arriving to my house. When after I shot myself, my head fell pink forts onto my coffee table. And can't tell you what happened after that, except for when my parents arrived, they put me back. My dad put me, held me. They didn't know what was happening yet until they found the gun. And they finally put two and two together, I guess. And I, I, that's a 
found that hot seat forever that I couldn't go through that. But they hardly pieced it together, and my dad was clinging to me and, and saying, why, Allie, why would you do this? And he said it probably five times, and then the paramedics were all just staring at me. I, I, it's, I know it's their protocol, but it was a little weird. Yeah. It was a little odd that I just had all these grown men staring down at me like, hello. Gunshot wounds to that here. But my mom, I still like, no, that's not funny. <laughs> my mom is standing behind me and the paramedics are following. I walked myself to the stretcher. Wow. what I'm told. Don't remember doing it. It's what I've been told. But I hear my mom screaming behind me. And I look up at her and the look on her face still haunts me. But she was just screaming over and over. That's my daughter. But before my parents arrived, I just remember one more thing. While my head was on the table, it was like instantaneous regret. Once I, once so, once, once I pulled that trigger and I was still cognizant, it was instantaneous regret. And then prayed to God in that moment there. And they asked for forgiveness. You know, I wasn't all there, but I asked for forgiveness. And so I said, please don't let this happen to my mom. Mm-hmm. And here I am. I spent a month, that's it, a month in the hospital. I had a gaping hole in one channel. I couldn't talk. I had to take via whiteboards. And that was a major pain. I can't just talk. I didn't eat for my first seven days in the hospital. Didn't eat or drink. I finally had surgery. I swab 11 or 12 hour surgery on day eight in the hospital where they inserted a feeding tube that then fell out like a week later. I had to go back in, get a peg tube and have that for four months but that was the best i'm here now ali this is absolutely remarkable i don't i don't think it's it's a stretch to say it's a miracle and and as the other people who have commented on who are who know you and have gotten to know you just my my little bit of exposure since we connected a few weeks ago has been what a beautiful, inspirational soul you are. And you clearly spread joy and love and you are just the embodiment of of grace. And it's just an honor to be in your company. Right. I would love to hear a little about your life since that experience and what have, what what has helped you in your recovery, what sort of activities do you do to to stay on the path now? Oh, 
first and foremost, I will tell you right now, since I do ramble, it is, it has not been on South China Railroad. It is a challenge every single day of my life. And any addict who's listening to this could agree, is that living without something that your body once needed to survive and your brain was manipulated into believing that you needed alcohol, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to overcome. It's even more hard the further you get into it. I'm about a year and a half into it. That's not very long. It's longer than yesterday, and it'll be longer tomorrow. But I've got to live to see tomorrow. Like, I'm strong enough. This is why I tell myself. I am strong enough to get through to tomorrow. If today's bad, all right. Let myself be sad. If I'm sad tomorrow, okay, I will be sad tomorrow. But I'm not going to be sad forever. This journey has been so incredibly challenging. And on April 11th of 2022, only five months after I shot my little symptoms in the head, I broke my leg on a hike with my husband. It wasn't a hike. That's a, that's a long shot. It was a walk at a local park with our dog. I stepped on a rock and I slipped and I broke my tibia and my fibula. And that was 12 days after I had my seizing tube removed. So I got to take like three showers that didn't consist of taping up all my wounds and wearing bags around my seizing tube. Now it started right over. I thought I thought I was out. I thought I was a thing to this huddle, and then that's funny. You got a little too enthusiastic. So then, you know, I got humbled again. And thank God for it. You know, like I am not saying any of this to complain because it brought me to where I am right now. I've had tons of heartbreak, tons of disappointment. People disappoint me every day, but you just try to learn to live with it and be different. If you don't like it, then don't do it. Be different. Like, what, what, people are so quick to want to fit into a narrative, fit into like this category, because it gives you a sense of belonging. They want to go out and, and drink with their friends. If they don't drink, they feel pressured to drink because everyone else is drinking. Who cares? Who cares what everyone else is doing? Just be you. God knows you the way you are. God gave us all free will. And we can choose to do with it what we want. We can be sad and upset for the rest of our lives and put that off onto everyone else in our past we meet. There, we can smile and walk for the good in each day. That's what I try to do. No matter, I'm telling you, I have had some mental breakdowns. I had to say it slowly because to emphasize, 
I've had some serious mental breakdowns in the last year and a half. Felt like I wasn't going anywhere. I've had 10 surgeries in a year and a half, and I'm still not out of the woods yet. I've still got another one. And who knows how many else? But whatever. It's also, they're not just doing these surgeries just because I'm an experiment. They're doing it to help me. Doctors are giving us advice. No matter if it does turn out to be wrong, the intentions are there. We have to identify people's intentions, whether they're authentic or they're well fabricated. We have to be able to identify that. And like I said, I've been disappointed a lot, but life is good overall. I love that. That's a heck of a takeaway from your your story. Dinar, <laughs> you're you are such an inspirational individual. That means so much to me to hear that. Thank you. I'm so grateful you came on the show today. Is there anything that else that you would like to leave listeners with? Any advice? Any experiences? Any thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, one, I'd like to ask you, how long do you have sober? So my sobriety has not been linear, but I I started working on my alcoholism when I was 27. So that was back in 2007. I spent the majority of my 30s sober. My longest stretch was about eight and a half years. And then I had some slips. So I had some struggles over the course of the pandemic. So consistently today, I am right around the 90-day mark since I last drink. So hey, that sounds whatever. I want that. I'm so glad you said that. This is what I do. I feed off others. Yeah, I love it because people. I say I hate people. It's a lie. I don't hate people. I love people, but people disappoint me often because they could. You can always do better. I see people on the time, and I'm like, you can do better than that. And I, what I'm going to take away to leave with everyone else is what you just said is it's not always linear during I'm young, I'm only 33. And I haven't really given myself the opportunity to drink yet. I mean, I, I could have, I chose not to. It doesn't mean I never will again. I'm not going to say that because I have no way of knowing. Like, I have no way of knowing because I can't speak to who I am 10 years from now. Just like no one else here. We're all individuals. We ebb and flow through life. We're malleable. But I just want to say that it doesn't matter if you have one day sober or if you have three years sober. When you have one day sober, it means that you're trying. And if you have a relapse on drugs or whatever it is your vice, keep going. If you want to get better, do it for yourself. Don't do it for anyone else but yourself. That is one of the, the terrible things in my life. It flipped when I started doing stuff for me instead of for and now I see I still do a lot for others. But this this sobriety is for me. Because I wanted to show myself I could. And every single human being is capable. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Oh, Allie. Thank you. Such a pleasure. It's so nice to meet you too. I look forward to getting to know you further down the road. So you'll join us at one of our Zoom meetings one of these days. And I'd love to. Oh, that'd be wonderful. I'll get you the schedule and we'll get something on the books. Okay. All right. Well, thank you to the Sobertown listeners for joining us. Again, if you'd like to connect, the website is SobertownPodcast.com or look for Sobertown Podcast on Facebook. We're always happy to have new members and get to know everyone. I hope you all have a fabulous day. Thank you.